Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. The following episode is called Paradise Island. Santa Carolina is part of the Bazaruto archipelago off the coast of Inyamban in Mozambique. It's remote, exotic, and quite untouched. It was rightly known as Paradise Island. The small island entertained many of us Rhodesians, South Africans, and Portuguese in the 1960s and 70s and even boasted a hotel built in the 1950s, but sadly has been abandoned since 1973. Still standing, the hotel, like much of Mozambique's architecture, has a distinct Art Deco influence. It's said that Elton John and many famous artists came here in its heyday to find inspiration for their works. Bob Dylan, they say wrote his song Mozambique in the restaurant of the hotel a few decades back. However, I've never been able to find any proof of that. This island was so affectionately called paradise by locals and tourists alike. The reefs surrounding Santa Carolina offered some of the best snorkeling in the Bazaruto archipelago, both off the boat and directly from the shore. As the tide pushed in around the shores of the island, it brought with it many amazing turtles playing in the currents. At the end of the island was a casino which was never completed and sat forlornly on the edge of the ocean, a blot on the otherwise unblemished landscape. I don't remember the hotel ever being posh. Indeed, it was possibly always in a state of repair or disrepair like so many Mozambique hotels, but the Art Deco lines and the curves were quite splendid. Vasco da Gama would have sailed past it in 1498, but East Africa was ruled by the Sultan of Zanzibar and coupled with hostile tribes, malaria, and that lovely Portuguese attitude of amanha, amanha. Very little was ever done to really develop the stretch of Eden. There were some small, rather shabby settlements that developed organically over time. Villanculos, 400 miles north of the capital, Lorenzo Marx, or now Maputo, boasted a small airport that could take a rickety Vickers Viscount. I remember flying from Salisbury 
and the aircraft seating plan was similar to a train with seats facing each other and a table in between. I might be wrong, maybe I was too young to remember these things, but I'm pretty certain. Passengers could smoke, drink and play cards. It was all terribly glamorous, I thought. A rather tired Villain Coulos hotel with the obligatory overflowing septic tank on the patio offered travellers fish cakes and soggy chips. It puzzles me why we would want British food in a Portuguese colony so well known for its cuisine. There was nothing sexy about the hotel and most people bolted as soon as possible before depression set in or food poisoning. Or both. Getting to the island from Villanculos entailed embarking on a short journey on a rusty tub of a ferry, terribly exciting for us children, although I suspect a bore for the parents who would sit under the awning surrounded by crates of cabbages and canned goods getting sloshed. During the journey across, we would watch fascinated as pods of Indo-Pacific dolphins leapt hectically in front of the boat, playing with us, charging the wake, then diving beneath the starboard, only to reappear portside like small torpedoes with twinkly eyes. There were shoals of flying fish shooting across the silvery surface of the water, gliding for a microsecond, then disappearing into the depths. Deep below in the Azure Sea, we could see the banks of corals that had made this part of the world so famous. James Michener wrote of this Inyamban coastline in his 1971 epic, The Drifters, although his unfortunate hero died of a drug overdose. Although popular with the rich and famous, I don't think there was anything particularly posh about the island, but it did have the ability to attract people from all walks of life, from hippies and artists to tycoons and tobacco farmers. And what characters they were. The Santa Carolina ferry was slow enough for some of the men to trawl on the back. My mum tells of one story from one trip over when two elderly gentlemen, clearly on a week away from their wives, were having a whale of a time, knocking back the Laurentinas and trying their luck at fishing. Let's call the old codgers Mark and Richard. Mark leant down over the side of the boat to have a look at the ever-changing blues and greens and turquoise hues. My word, he remarked with excitement. Have you ever seen such colours, old chap? Richard, come here, come here and have a look. His eagerness was followed by a quick swig of beer, which immediately went down the wrong hole. <coughs> As his lung attempted to regurgitate the lager, a final heave racked his body. <coughs> And to his horror, his false teeth shot out of his mouth and plopped into the sea. For a minute, his grisly fangs floated upon the bubbly wake and then quietly disappeared down into Le Grand Bleu. 
Bad luck, Mark, Richard said, wiping away the tears from his eyes. Jolly, jolly bad luck. It's a liquid diet for you this fortnight. Lucky man. Fuck off, mumbled Mark as he staggered off to have a pee. Richard continued to laugh for a while longer and then hatched a plan in Mark's absence. He quickly removed his own dentures and hooked them onto Mark's spinner, then quietly let the line out. Mark, he called, Mark, come quickly, I think you might have something on the end of your line. His friend dashed back across the deck and began to reel in. Jeepers, do you know? I think you might be right, Richard. Ha! Well, it can't be too big. He gave his rod a tug and continued reeling in. I just can't see what it is, he lifted. Then to his astonishment, dangling on the end of his line, were his damned dentures, dripping like some ghoulish panto prop. Christ almighty, look, he shouted. I've only gone and hooked my false teeth. Flipping eck. With a knowing smirk, Richard rushed over to Mark to have a look, by which time Mark had taken hold of the teeth and was studying them over his specs. What amazing luck, old boy, said an innocent-looking Richard. Mark had a puzzled look on his face, peering at the set of gnashes. Ah, bugger it. These aren't mine. And to Richard's horror, promptly chucked them back into the sea. The two men spent the rest of the holiday mumbling to each other and sucking away at their meals, their hopes of catching any women dashed upon the coral rocks that surrounded the hotel. As the 1970s progressed, the Paradise Island Hotel fell into disrepair, eventually getting abandoned entirely. For a while, we decamped to a small place on the Mozambique mainland called Seta. This was truly wild country, and one day we set off in Land Rovers across the beach, travelling some ten miles without a break in the sand, or without seeing a soul. It was truly magical. Our destination was a lagoon called Bartholomew Dias, named after the Portuguese explorer. We could eat oysters straight off the rocks and crayfish purchased for a few escudos from local fishermen and spent the days snorkeling amongst the beautiful yet deadly lionfish, shoals of inquisitive barracuda, and thousand upon thousand of intricately coloured coral and parrotfish. On the seaward side of the lagoon, the waves were massive, crashing down and creating a rip that was undoubtedly extremely dangerous. The Indian Ocean, and in particular a gullus current, is infamous for its strength and ferocity, not to mention great whites and hammerheads, patrolling the shallows. One travelling companion included Thelma Bamford, aunt to farmer Bill Francis. 
I adopted Thelma as my own great aunt. Wonderful, eccentric, Auntie T was out from England and chose the seaward side to go for a dip. Within seconds she realised her mistake, and to her horror, the riptide sucked at her like some insatiable demon. Before she could shake a finger, the hungry current had dispatched with her cosy and left her as naked as the day she was born. Now, Bill was a bit of a prude and was mortified as his favourite relative came laughing hysterically out of the water, trying her best somewhat unsuccessfully to cover her ample bosom and mount of Venus. For heaven's sake, Bill, don't just stand there, she chortled. Someone get me a sarong. I suspect her cosy is still wrapped around a piece of coral somewhere off the coast of Inyamban. Thelma was a very proficient nurse by profession, and she had a rather ghastly fascination for body lice. She was terribly proud to announce this to anyone who cared to listen, particularly the men who would snort into their beers in abject embarrassment. That, and another of her pet subjects, bowel movements. When she was a young nurse during World War II, she volunteered to have a small wooden box full of lice attached to her arm so that they could study the little critters. It had a sliding trapdoor so that the mites could attach themselves to her skin and breed. It was my Edward Jenner moment, she liked to remind us. Jenner, of course, was the pioneer of the smallpox vaccine. Daily, she would peer into her box and count the small eggs that had been laid, almost like a mother hen inspecting its brood. Apparently, the knowledge garnered from these tests sent the world of crabs into a tailspin, thanks to Auntie T. Had it not been for Thelma, we would never have known that body lice and pubic lice behaved in quite different manners, as well they should and that pubic lice can only be caught person to person, whilst body lice are not quite circumspect in how they catch a ride. When I left college and lived in London, I often stayed with Auntie T. I was explaining to her that I'd once caught lice from a haystack when working on a farm in Wiltshire during my summer's break. Thelma looked over at me from her knitting and simply shook her head. Then let out a roar of laughter. Pete, such lies. It's quite impossible to catch crabs from a haystack. You simply must have been lying with some awful loose woman. Really, what a funk. I went away shamefaced. I adored this wonderful, strong-minded character with her feminist ideas, outspoken attitude, and hair always done up in a perfect Gibson girl pompadour. She was a complex character, and despite her obvious feminist ethos, she once famously stormed out of her local church in Winchmore Hill, never to return. The reason they had installed a new vicar, who was a woman, 
Thelma was outraged and oddly felt that the sermons should always be performed by a man. Religion aside, little seemed to faze her, although once on the banks of the Zambezi River, the cliff face collapsed, almost killing her. Being in the middle of nowhere with no passports, the only course of action was to smuggle her by boat across the river into Zambia, where a remote mission station up the Luangwa River had medical facilities, albeit rather rudimentary. Poor Thelma must have been in agony getting lumped and bumped from one place to the other, but the nuns did manage to save her life, and in the true Thelma fashion, she did eventually return, legally this time, to thank them in person. It was all very David Livingstone. Auntie T died at a ripe old age of 87. Her commanding voice could still be heard echoing across the green and Winchmore Hill, North London, until her last breath. Although I was not family, I was incredibly touched when I found out that Thelma had left me a couple of thousand pounds in her will and a pair of not-quite-so-welcome porcelain oriental lions. However, typically of Thelma, the real surprise and legacy was her request to leave her body to science and for donations to the Lincolnshire Wildlife Trust to plant a forest after her death. I donated some of my inheritance towards a tree. One day I shall visit that forest and sit under that tree and think of Auntie T and Paradise Island and Inyamban. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.